original thought was to, of course, uh, thinking about communion, thinking about the Lord's Supper, was to preach from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and going back and keeping track of my preaching schedule and where I have been and where I have not been, I noticed that it seems like every communion service, that's what I preach from. As I was studying that text, it's like, man, this stuff all sounds very familiar. And it's like, well, yeah, I could just pull out my old notes or I could go elsewhere. And so this morning, I'm going to go elsewhere, and I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 12. I'm only going to be reading verses 1 to 13 this morning as we look at the first Passover. And, you know, we see about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, when uh, on the night that Jesus was uh, crucified, on that was the last Passover. And so we want to go back, and we want to look at the first Passover and what got it all started here this morning. So in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, God's inspired and inerrant word reads, Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginnings of months for you. It is the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to the father's household. A lamb for each household. Now, if household is too small for a lamb, and then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, in proportion to what each one should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall completely burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this way, with your garment belted around your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in a hurry. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. And fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the human firstborn to animals. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Father, I just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now, Lord, this morning, as we think about <clears throat> this fast first Passover and the meaning of it, Lord, there's many things within it that maybe unsettle us a bit, and rightly so. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this first Passover and think about the last Passover and the instructions you have given to us, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us. Praise your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds as we think about the meaning 
of the first Passover and then apply it to us here today. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've simply titled this here this morning that the first Passover. And today we're going to talk about the greatest impact on human society that the world has ever known. There are certain events in history that have a great impact on our lives and on society. We remember birthdays and anniversaries as a way to celebrate mile markers, as a way to evaluate the progress that we have made over the past year. High school graduation, college graduation, marriage, the birth of a child, the birth of a grandchild, a first car, a first job, a first home. All these are memorable events in our lives. In fact, at the speed in which our minds operate, your mind already took you on the journey and recalled the events and the first that I had just mentioned. In fact, not only did your mind bring these events to your remembrance, your mind also recalled the emotions that are attached with and to those events. There are also societal events that have greatly impacted our lives. The most recent that come to mind is 9-11. I just mentioned 9-11 and nothing else, and we all remember the event. If you were old enough to recall it, then you certainly remember the event. And if you were not old enough to recall it or actually be there that day, then you still are aware of that event. But you know the significance of 9-11's impact on society. For us who quite clearly remember when 9-11 happened, you probably also know where you were when you heard the news of what has happened. I remember I was experiencing a first for me. I was in a coffee house. No, that wasn't a first for me. But I was in a coffee house handing over the keys to my very first contract built home to the owners. It was something that I'd done for the very first time. Then there's COVID-19, this whole pandemic. What would be the lasting effects of this pandemic on society? We can already see societal norms being changed over the past two years. But today, today we're going to look at an event that has and continues to have the greatest impact on humanity that the world has ever known. It's a first that took place nearly 4,000 years ago and set humanity on a course that not only changes how we see the days of the week, that only changes how we understand our calendar, but also changes how we view our relationship with Christ, with our Creator. This event is the first Passover. And the reason we are looking at the Passover is because the Passover is very closely connected to the Lord's Supper that we're going to partake in after the service here this morning. In fact, they are intimately tied together. And the Lord's Supper, which began as a Passover service, the institution of the Lord's Supper at this time was given. As you know, Jesus left the church with two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism signifies our entrance into the body of Christ. We are baptized as a sign of our allegiance to Jesus with his death, with his burial, 
and with his resurrection. Today, however, our focus is on the second ordinance given to the church, the Lord's Supper. If baptism signifies our beginning life with Christ, the Lord's Supper signifies our continuing with Christ. As we remember from time to time to time to time that we gather such as this to take the Lord's Supper together. We are baptized once, but we continually observe the Lord's Supper. The first Passover was a physical deliverance from the slavery of Egypt. It was not a spiritual deliverance, but it was a physical deliverance, a physical deliverance from a very physical slavery in the land of Egypt. The Lord's Supper is grounded in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. It was and is not a physical deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance. A deliverance, nonetheless, though, from the bondage of slavery and sin. But let's take a look at this Exodus passage. And from chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, I want you to notice the cost. You have heard it said that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, I would offer you this morning also that there's no such thing as a free Lord's Supper. Everything comes with a cost. And the Passover story pointing points forward to the work of the cross, to the work of what Jesus has done on the cross and a cost that is associated with it. And the cost is sin, the cost of sin. The Passover story is a clear image pointing forward in history to Jesus and the cross. The cross of sin has provided for us and the cost of sin is blood. And so there is a cost. There is a cost that has been provided for. And the cost of that provision is blood. In fact, in the first nine plagues, as you see that led up to the first Passover, those first nine plagues were showing God's power over creation. They were pantheists is what they were, meaning God is within everything. There's a God of the river, there's a God of the stars, there's the God of the sun, there's the God of the moon, there's the God of the trees, there's the God of the fields. And God defeated each and every one of those gods. Plague after plague, God defeated the gods of Egypt. And when Egypt, what, the Egyptians, what the Egyptians should have done was to repent of their sins and join Moses in praising the one true God. But they didn't. Pharaoh still refused after nine plagues. He still refused to let God's people go. But then God sends his final and most deadly plague of all, the death of the firstborn. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, I, Yahweh, will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the human firstborn to animals and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment I am Yahweh and what you notice in this verse is that there is not a single person who is not affected or a better way of saying it every single person is affected by God's judgment it doesn't matter if you are a human or if you are an animal if you are a God or if you are not a God, if you are a Pharaoh or if you are a slave of Pharaoh, every single one is under the scrutiny eye of God. 
and the last plague was a glorious act of the sovereign justice of God on all humanity, on all creation. The cost of sin. What did God did to what God did to the Egyptians was no surprise. But the way God treated his own people, the Israelites, may be surprising. You see, the Israelites were under the same eye, under the same demands as the Egyptians. The Israelites were under the same judgment of death. Not only did God visit every home of the Egyptians, God also visited every single home of the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, it says this, Now Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your homes to strike you. In the mercy of God, God provided his people as a way of escape from his wrath. But we must grapple with the fact that God claimed the right to kill every firstborn of the Israelites also. Just because the Israelites were God's chosen people did not exempt them from their sins. They too participated in Adam's race. They too fell under the same thing that we fall under, and that is original sin, that by default, by affiliation to Adam and Eve, which everyone is, we too are under the penalty that Adam and Eve have found themselves under. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not new to the New Testament or to the Apostle Paul. We see this same truth in the first Passover. Egypt and Israel were both under the same judgment of God. And the Bible tells us in Romans that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin and that the cost of sin is death. Adam was given clear instructions from God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But on the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And Paul tells us in Romans that just as through one man, sin has entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The 10th plague of Egypt was a sign of God's judgment against all humanity. This is the reality of of every single person. This is the reality that every single person must wrestle with. This is the reality that you must wrestle with and that I must wrestle with. You will never see your need for salvation. You will never see your need for a Savior unless you accept that you are indeed as guilty as anyone else, as guilty as the Egyptians, as guilty as the Israelites. I've been thinking through this idea here for a little bit. They say that you, you've heard a terminology, especially today in our politically charged culture, where we hear this word about intersectionality. And we know that the problem that this type of methodology has and brings on society. Well, I think the same applies to our churches. And that is this idea of Christian 
intersectionality. Now, what do I mean by that? How many boxes can you check, which is all intersectionality is about, right? Well, I was raised as a Christian. My parents are Christian. I went to a Christian church. I went to a Christian school. I went to a Christian college. You can check all these boxes, as I hear so many people do. And young people, you guys going off to college? Listen, showing up here this morning and being raised in a Christian home and going to a Christian school such as Holly Grove will not save you. You must surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ. That is it. That is the only thing that will save you. Just because we grew up within the church and we're generational Christians, we might be generational preachers, doesn't save anyone. Checking all these Christian boxes doesn't make anyone a Christian. And for the Israelites to believe that the land that they will choose, the land that they have chosen for this Passover meal, if they think that that will save them, they will be sorrowfully incorrect. They must literally take that land that they chose. And they must literally slaughter that lamb. And they must literally take the blood of that lamb and physically put the blood onto the doorpost and over the door. That's the part that they must play. Just simply choosing and just simply believing that God has provided this lamb for them will not cause the death angel to pass over their house. There is a part they play in this Passover meal. That is the cost. That their sin and our sin demands. A belief that is backed up with action. Belief without action is no belief at all. But fortunately, the cost has been provided for. And like the Egyptians, the Israelites deserved or deserved to divine judgment. But unlike the Egyptians, they would be saved by grace through faith. You see, the Israelites deserved the very same thing the Egyptians deserved. But the Israelites were given grace through faith. The Bible doesn't tell us this. But we know a, a chapter later in the 13th chapter, I think, of Exodus, as Pharaoh finally did leave the people go, let them go, we know that a mixed multitude went up with the Israelites. There wasn't just Israelites that went. And because of that one verse, I believe that if the Egyptian would have also listened to the instructions of Yahweh as they were given to Moses and Moses passed them on to the people, that they too would have had this opportunity to take a Passover lamb. I firmly believe that simply because of the rest of the teaching of Scripture and also because we see that a mixed multitude went up with the Israelites. Grace through faith saved them as it saves us here today. God's people needed an atonement, and God provided. Verses 3 to 6. Let's read them again. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to the father's household. A lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, and then he has his neighbor nearest to his house, they are to take one according to the number of persons in them and is portioned to what each one shall eat. They are to divide the lamb, and you shall take an unblemished lamb, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep and from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. Four days you are to protect that lamb or that goat. 
And on the same month, in the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is slaughter it at twilight. Listen, God's instructions were specific. God's instructions were clear. The lamb each household was to choose needed to be perfect, needed to be without blemish. God demands the best. God demands perfection. Moses would later write in Leviticus, he says, For you are to, to be accepted, it must be made a, a male for your sacrifice to be accepted. It must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever a defect you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When someone offers a sacrifice to Yahweh, there shall be no defect in it. The holiness of God demands only the best. We already see this in Genesis chapter 4, just four chapters into our Bible. So it came about over the course of time. It's Cain and Abel, right? We're familiar with the story. So it came about over the course of time that Cain brought up offering before the Lord, and so did Abel. The problem was Cain didn't bring his best. Cain brought a defective sacrifice, if you will, and God found no favor, no regard in Cain's offering, but he did with Abel's. See, in salvation, God gives what God demands. And so again and again through history of redemption, God has always provided a sacrificial animal to save his people. And sometimes we think it's like, how can God be so demanding? How can he require these things on us? And yet, as we also see throughout the biblical text, God always provides for what God demands. You see it in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Both Abraham and Isaac knew exactly what God required. In Genesis chapter 22, we are told the story there. It's a troubling story. Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, Father, look, here we've got the fire. Here we've got the sticks. Here we've got the wood, the fuel for the fire. But we got no sacrifice. <laughs> well, Isaac wasn't told that he was the sacrifice. But what did Abraham say? Abraham said, God will provide. And as they went up to the place where God told Abraham to go and worship him, he built an altar there, and there was still land. There was still no sacrifice for, uh, 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 provided for, for Abraham. And so there upon that altar, he took his son Isaac, his only son, and he tied him upon that altar and was going to slay him there when God stopped him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a troubling story. And yet God provided a lamb. He provided a ram for Isaac, or for Abraham, to sacrifice. He, he provided a substitute in place of Isaac. Every year, God provided a sacrifice for Israel. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sacrifice the animal in the presence of God as a sin offering. We're also told in Leviticus, then he shall slaughter the goat of sin offering which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the atoning cover, mercy seat, and in front of the atoning cover. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of all the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their unlawful acts regarding their sins. What God requires, God provides. We switch to the New Testament, 
And we see there at the beginning of John's gospel where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God pointing to Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. Page after page, the Bible tells us that for everyone who wants to come to God, who wants to be in a right relationship with God, must do so through blood of the Lamb that God has provided. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. For Jesus to be our Passover Lamb and to meet God's requirements, He needed also to be perfection. 1 Peter 2, 2. 1 Peter 2, 22. Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. John 19, 6. Pilate said, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no fault in this man. Hebrews 9. The blood of Christ who offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus. The unblemished should not be lost on us that Hebrew uses that same word unblemished as is often used in the Old Testament, that Jesus is unblemished, spotless lamb of the Old Testament Passover, that he was crucified, that he was killed right at the same time that the Passover lambs were being killed that last Passover in Jerusalem. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, just as the Passover lambs were being driven into the city of Jerusalem, so too Jesus was slain as the Passover lambs were being slain. As one writer notes, all over the city, fathers were getting ready to make the offering, gathering their families together and saying, God has provided a lamb for us. Over at the temple, the high priest was also preparing a lamb to present as an atonement for Israel's sins. And there was Jesus hanging on the cross, with the sacrificial blood flowing from his hands and his side, he was the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. What God demands, God provides. God provided the cost for our penalty of sin. And the cost was blood. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The cost of sin is blood. This gets messy. This can be offensive. But neither the messiness nor the offensiveness changes the necessity of the need for blood. Jesus is more than our example. An example saves no one. So many want to look at Jesus as our model, as our example, someone to follow. That changes no one. We do not need an example. We need a Savior. We do not need an example. We need a substitute. To believe in Jesus is not enough. To have a sense of our sin is not enough. We need the shed blood of Jesus who was slain on behalf of your sin and on behalf of my sins. The people of Israel needed to know the good news. But knowing the good news was not going to save them. The people were told that the death angel is going to come and the firstborn of every family of all their livestock will die. That's bad news. But they were told the good news. If you take a lamb and you slaughter that lamb and put his blood upon the door, that's the good news. But they literally had to do that. They could not just accept the good news. They needed to act upon it. 
the importance of this would have not been lost on the eldest son. Fortunately, I'm the last of 11. But this would have not gone unnoticed by the eldest son. Verse 3. On the 10th of this month, you are to take a lamb yourself. Verse 5. An unblemished sheep or goat. Verse 6. And keep it until the 14th day of the same month and then slaughter it at twilight. Verse 7. Take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lentil. This was the instructions that were given. I imagine the lamb was chosen and kept in the house. You know, I was reminded. We lived in Washington State. Um, and deer are just goats, you know. But we had this little, I almost said goat, but yeah, deer, same thing. We had this little deer, and it, it found its way into our yard, and the girls took it in, and this thing would run up and down the steps and through the house and every which way. It drove the dog nuts. But we liked this little, little deer, and eventually it wandered off and did its own thing. But, but think about it just for a moment, if you will. They were to choose a lamb, and they were to keep this lamb for four days. And during this four days, this is their sacrifice. This is their replacement. This is their substitute for the eldest son. I imagine he took good care of this lamb. He fed this lamb. He cared for this lamb. He probably played with this lamb. And in this short time, considering the seriousness of the moment, I'm sure that lamb became very much a part of the family. And then at Passover... The lamb was slaughtered. And this was a messy and a bloody event. The father would take this little lamb they cared for for four days. He would put it into his arms. He would pull back its head. He would slide it, slit its throat. And the blood would pour forth from this lamb. The white wool would turn red. And they would collect this blood. And they would put it on the doorpost and on the lintel beside the door. And I can imagine the children asking the father, why did this have to happen? And the father would explain that the lamb was a substitute so that his eldest son, his firstborn, could live. I'm sure that night was a sleepless night as they waited to see if God would indeed pass over their home. When the family saw the blood, they saw that there was an expiation, a nice theological term for a covering over of sin. When God saw the blood, God saw propitiation, another nice theological term that provision has made. God seen the blood. That is the covering, the expiation for the people. God sees the blood as somebody died. A penalty has been paid. The propitiation has been made. Judgment from God was turned away, appeased. This is the process of the first Passover. This is the process that they had in mind as they went through every single Passover, year after year after year. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 35 tells us that King Josiah celebrated the Passover by slaughtering 40 thousand animals 
And the historian Josephus calls an account that of his telling of the Passover, keeping a census and, and thereby counting the people by how many animals were slaughtered, that usually 250,000 animals were slaughtered every Passover. What a mess. Yet Hebrews 10.4 tells us it is impossible for the blood of the bulls and goats to take away the sins of the people. What was needed was a better sacrifice. Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus is not only a better sacrifice, but a once-for-all-time sacrifice. Because it is impossible for any other blood, the blood of bulls and goats, to take away sin. This is why we believe in the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus said, shed his own blood for our sins. The New Testament is very clear on this point. When the Bible speaks of crucifixion, it constantly draws our attention to the blood of Jesus. Romans 5, if we have been justified by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews 13, Jesus suffered to sanctify the people through his blood. 1 Peter 1, you were redeemed with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. John 1, 1, 7. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 9, 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You cannot get away from it. This is the meaning of substitution. It is the death of one on behalf of another. This too we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned and God killed an animal. They, they sinned, and God said, hey, how do you guys know you're naked? You know? They said, oh, you ate from the tree of good night. And God killed an animal and covered them up. There was a covering that was put on them for their uncleanness, for their, for their sinfulness. God was showing that although they deserved to die, and yet that it was possible for another, and in this case, two animals, to die in their place. The animals paid the price for the sins of Adam and Eve. And when we look at the cross, we see that payment has been made for our sin. And God sees the cross. And it is stained with the blood of his very own firstborn son. And Jesus said, it is finished. The only way to be saved from your sin and delivered from death is by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. God calls everyone to trust in his blood. This is what the Israelites did at the first Passover. They trusted in the blood. Putting blood on the doorpost was an act of faith in order to be delivered from death. They believed God's word and took God at his word. The death of Jesus brought an end to the Old Testament Passover. And what we memorialize today and what we will remember today was first started, not at the first Passover, but the last Passover, the last Passover to have happened was at the death of Jesus. When he broke his body, spilled his blood, once for all, who put their trust in him. And the Bible tells us also that God publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation, as an atonement. In his blood, so that all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who call upon Jesus, 
will be saved. When we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, that's a bit graphic. That's a bit hard. But this is in the context of where, how we come to this supper. We don't come to it lightly. We don't come to it flippantly. We don't come to it as a one and done. We don't come to it that this is the actual body and the blood of Christ. It is not. Jesus died once, not every time we take it. We remember what God has done, what God has provided on our behalf. Father, I pray this morning. This morning as we come before your table, as we come to communion, that we don't do it lightly. There's a gravitas about it. There's a, there's a holiness, a seriousness about it. We thank you that not a single one of us this morning needed to kill another animal so that we can remember and so that we can have our sins forgiven. We go through a story of 4,000 years ago to try to help us understand how fortunate, how blessed, how chosen we indeed are to be living in 2022. But I pray, Lord, that we will all take it very seriously this morning and that your name indeed would be made great and that you would indeed receive honor and glory from each and every one of us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus.
Jesus